Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy at the Crawford School here at the Australian National University, where I'm Director of the Children's Policy Centre and the Poverty and Inequality Research Centre. And as always, I'm delighted to be here with my pod buddy. Hi, I'm Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician, and I'm the Human Futures Fellow in the College of Health and Medicine here at ANU. Sharon, We are in the middle of a mini-series on systems in dysfunction, and I I have to say I've been thinking so much about the conversation we had with David Lindenmeyer last week on biodiversity, um, on the crisis in preservation of biodiversity and the way in which we've undervalued the environment in Australia, but also the remarkable opportunities that David has has exemplified throughout his remarkable career um, and, and the pathway that he provided us with for, for really contending with the challenge which is faced now, the crisis in, in biodiversity um, and animal extinction in the Australian context. I, I've actually ref, I've referred a number of friends and colleagues to the pod. Uh, how about you? Did you, you find yourself thinking back over that conversation? Yeah, I really enjoyed that conversation and I'd, I'd been looking forward to having the opportunity to, to have David on the pod for a very long time. So it was terrific to be able to to hear and to learn from him, um, not only about the challenges, but as you say, the solutions. And of course, as I reflected on what David had to say, I was also thinking about the conversation we had some episodes ago, I think it was late last year now, with Kelly O'Shaughnessy from the Australian Conservation Foundation. And um, you know, some of the numbers that she gave that I must say still haunt me about the, mm. just the extent of loss of, of animals in Australia, you know, the possibility of the koala becoming extinct in, extinct in New South Wales, I think is, is just shocking to even contemplate. And I was really struck by some of the things that David spoke about, about the, just some of the very bad decisions that have been made, um, over recent years in Australia. But of course, as, David pointed out, we we do have different pathways forward and perhaps we are in a position where we can face something other than the, the kind of catastrophe that it felt we were looking at when we spoke to Kelly some months ago. 
Mm, absolutely. I thought um, the conversation with David was was somewhat of an antidote to the, the discussion we had with Kelly O'Shaughnessy earlier in the year. Another conversation which I find myself coming back to over and over again. Um, we are in a different time now in politics in the Australian context. We have opportunities for change. Yeah, and, and I put together the conversation that we had last week with David and the conversation the previous week with Mark Howden, both of whom, you know, spoke so with such hope, I think, about the pathways forward and the options that we have and, and as you say, the extraordinary opportunities we have to do things very differently. Today we're, we're going to have a, a different type of conversation, but before we, we go to that, I did want to remind people that we are based here at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University, and this pod is produced by Policy Forum. And of course, here at the Crawford School, the kinds of issues that we've been talking about over the past weeks, and we will continue to talk about as we think about systems under strain, are the very things that many of our courses, our degree programs, our short courses focus on. You know, a lot of the work that we do here, a lot of the teaching that we do is very much focused on future solutions. So if you'd like to find out more, please visit our website. You'll find that at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. Anna Greta, as I said, a, a different um, a different set of issues that we're going to be discussing today, but an incredibly important set of issues. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about the conversation we're about to have? Yeah, I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. It, it relates back to our conversations around climate change and, of course, then has also an impact on biodiversity and the future of Australia's nat- natural environment. Last month, Australia's energy system experienced the perfect storm with the war in Ukraine, ongoing impacts of the pandemic and natural disasters on our doorstep, all in the midst of Australia's winter, our energy system was under strain like never before. In an unprecedented move, the Australian energy market operator, also known as AEMO, suspended the national energy market in a move to keep energy flowing. The United Nations Sustainable Development Goal Number 7 outlines the goal of affordable, reliable energy and clean energy for all. As Australia grapples with transitioning to renewable energy, how is Australia tracking on achieving affordable, reliable and clean energy? What roadblocks stand in the way? And how do we ensure equitable access to energy as we transition to renewable energy sources? And so with us today, we have two remarkable guests who are expert in the subject, both of whom are based here at the Australian National University, Dr. Tom Longdon and Dr. Lee White. And I'll let them both introduce themselves. Tom, would you start? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, So I'm an environmental economist uh, here at the Crawford School, uh, but actually appointed through the ANU Grand Challenge Zero Carbon Energy for the Asia Pacific Initiative. Uh, so I've got a varied background, uh, really focusing on a, a quantitative focus on issues related to energy uh, and health, uh, and that includes looking at energy insecurity and also temperature-related mortality and other health economic issues like that. That's fantastic. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. And beside you, virtually at least, is Lee White. Lee, would you mind introducing yourself to the audience? Yeah, hello. Thanks for having me also. Uh, I'm Lee White. I'm at the School of Regulation and Global Governance, and I'm also part of the Zero Carbon Energy for the Asia-Pacific Grand Challenge. Uh, My research is in the area of energy policy, including 
both policy impact and the ways that policies are designed and implemented, uh, particularly looking at aspects that affect how systems uh, shape and change over time, um, and also at some of the impacts that can have on things like energy poverty. Welcome to both of you. It's really fantastic to have both of you on the pod with us today. And it's hard to think of a more topical issue to be talking about than, than energy. Lee, I wonder if we could start with you. And just to set the scene for today's conversation, can you provide us with a very brief overview of how Australia's energy system currently works? Just what's the basic structure and, and where are we seeing the points that are under strain at the moment? I'll try not to get too down in the weeds here. Um, but it, yeah, so, so sort of at an overview level, you've got things like the, the national electricity market, which serves most of the country, but leaves out uh, Western Australia and the Northern Territory. Um, and also, you know, there are various remote communities and other communities that, that aren't covered within that larger system. Um, and so that's one that's really uh, got a, a pretty, uh, a pretty wide set of regulation uh, that it covers in terms of protections and market rules, um, but also that allows a lot of uh, latitude for the states to set specific rules. Um, and also what we're seeing in, in some research that's currently underway is um, there's there's more variation than you would think from that description between different communities in uh, the ways that they're served by electricity systems um, and the protections that they have access to. Um, and we saw some interesting things pretty recently uh, in the spot market for that um, national electricity market being suspended when there were those concerns about uh, the prices being too high and the, the demand not uh, being met by the supply dispatches from the retailers. Um, and so that's sort of a, a, a an attempt to summarise that in a way that's not too dry. <laughs> it's a complex question, Lee, and, and that gives us a, a great place to, to start this conversation. And I wonder if I could just ask a couple of follow-ups, because this is something that's, I think, quite complex for many of us to get our heads around. Firstly, I, I wondered why it is that WA, Western Australia and the Northern Territory are left out of that national market? Uh, it, it's something that I thought was interesting when I first moved here and was looking up um, where the transmission lines are in Australia, that it simply doesn't connect across the, um, across the whole country. There, it's, a, it's an isolated network over there. The distances are just so great that there are no lines to take the electricity to those states from the others. It's a reminder of just how vast this country is, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Lee, the other thing that I was wondering about as you were talking is what what are the components of the system that we have? So if we think about gas or, re, or, gas or coal or renewables such as solar or wind, you know, what's the makeup of, of the current system? Yeah, and the ACT where we're sitting is interesting in that because it's uh, it's got – an equivalent uh, supply of, of 100% renewable electricity to meet its equivalent of its demand. Um, in other parts of the country, and hopefully maybe Tom can remember some more precise numbers, um, uh, you know, the share of solar is rising quite rapidly, uh, but it's still quite reliant on coal and gas. Yeah, and I guess uh, one thing 
to just mention there is that the even though the national electricity market is talked about as a whole, it actually varies by state quite a lot. Um, so you've got Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania and South Australia all being interconnected uh, across that grid. Um, and if you go online, you can actually look up uh, the spot prices for any given um, five-minute interval and you'll see that at different times of the day with different wind and solar conditions, the market is having a very different prices. And so at the moment when we talk about high electricity prices, we're talking about what's happening across the market. Um, but you're having – so what Lee mentioned there with increased solar and wind – you've got this case where South Australia and Victoria actually quite regularly have negative prices in the middle of the day, um, and that's being driven by uh, wind and solar. And so the concept of a negative price is interesting. Um, basically, what's happening there is there, there's so much more, there, there's so much wind, electricity from wind and solar being produced that um, it's actually higher than the demand um, and so that's a price signal for generators to actually reduce what they're sending to the market and so even within the NEM um, and talking about those higher prices due to the constraints from um, not having available gas even how that's playing out across the states is very different because of the solar wind mixes of those regions and of course the ACT has purchasing power a power purchasing agreement um, so in many ways the ACT is also protected from the price increases um, so we're seeing that with the spot market at the moment but whether it, it how it impacts bills is going to happen in the next few months because those prices will be passed on to um, households at some point uh, when their tariffs change and, and Tom, where exactly are we seeing the points of strain at the moment across those across the different states and across the system as you describe it? Well, the biggest strain has been uh, the the price of gas um, because we don't have we have a situation where we're exporting more gas than ever, uh, especially on the east coast, uh, and basically the gas price that's being set for our country and our internal use as well is based on the international gas price. So that, that's where those higher prices are coming from in terms of gas, and that's flowing into the electricity system because gas is commonly used as, and coal as well, is commonly used to meet the demand for the peak periods. Um, and that's one of the strains that's happening is we don't have a system where we're storing enough of the solar and wind or generating enough solar and wind to meet the peak. And so we're at this sort of awkward growth stage where renewables haven't grown enough that they're offsetting all of the demand. Uh, we're still relying on coal and gas, especially in uh, Queensland and New South Wales, uh, to meet some of that demand. And so a lot of the stories that you would have seen in the news about the strain on the electricity system at the moment is very much about uh, meeting the peak demand, especially on these cold days where uh, there hasn't been that much solar production and, uh, you know, wind isn't blowing that well. But then the, the strain is different across the states as well 
because it depends on w- which system is relying on which type of generation. And hence, that's the case where really, you know, the strain is coming from is meeting the peak demand. And a lot of the prices being set during that peak period are, be- are basically exposed to the higher coal and gas prices. Tom, you mentioned the the international gas price or the the price that's sent internationally, and that's something that we often hear about in the commentary of the price of energy in Australia. Could you just briefly explain to us how that international price is set, um, and 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 how that impacts on the prices in Australia? Because I think that's something that people often wonder about: is who it is that sets that price. Well, uh, that's, yeah, so at the moment we have a case where there is huge amount of, a huge amount of demand for gas from LNG Um, and on the East Coast what we've done is actually started exporting a lot more gas um, to those markets, to to foreign markets um, to basically meet demand. So the the price is being set by the demand from, um, you know, other countries uh, but we haven't got the current system where we've rationed enough for domestic uses um, during these sort of cold nights. And so there's a bit of a, a, a mismatch there. And so, you know, when uh, people are talking about uh, the federal government getting involved and intervening in the market and that that's going to take a while, um, we have this situation where there wasn't forward planning to make sure that our domestic supply of gas is being met before, you know, companies could export gas. Um, and so there's a bit of a mismatch there, especially since um, the forecasted demand for gas and hasn't, been, hasn't been met. So it's really this awkward period where there's heightened gas demand within the country, so within the East Coast domestically, um, and yet, you know, uh, companies are meeting are basically selling the gas overseas because they don't have to meet a certain uh, quota domestically. Um, and that's basically been the uh, one of the stories with gas over the last, I think, five years um, and those increased gas prices is that we've opened up foreign com- competition. So the, the same type of uh, behaviour isn't being seen in Western Australia. Um, they're still exporting a lot of gas but they have also enough gas to meet their domestic demand. And so we've got that imbalance at the moment. Um, and, you know, the the invasion of Ukraine has really changed the global gas market where a lot of countries are willing to pay more to get gas. And you've got countries stockpiling for the winter at the moment. So even though Northern Hemisphere countries are in summer, um, they're also trying to buy gas at the moment to stockpile for the winter because they're quite nervous about their own winter demand. I'd love to ask the two of you now about this relationship that Australia has with fossil fuels. It, it's a complex relationship and, and somewhat toxic for our health and perhaps for the health of the planet. We have both this internal market reliance that you've both just mapped out for us so well And we also have a broader national economic uh, perspective of the role of exporting fossil fuels in in our economic viability. I would love to hear from both of you your thoughts on on how we achieve an amicable breakup, so to speak, with fossil fuels at an Australian level. Lee, what are your thoughts on the role that fossil fuels play in both the Australian economy and in our energy market locally? 
I mean, this is this is definitely also influenced by our work in in that grand challenge, uh, looking at zero carbon energy for the Asia Pacific. Um, in that, uh, there's an opportunity for Australia to move to alternate energy exports. Um, for example, hydrogen, as the technology evolves, as the landscape for policy and markets evolve to support that. Um, but in the short term, and I think this is something we're really seeing with Ukraine as well, um, and the situation over there, is that in the very short term, it's extremely difficult to move away from that reliance on fossil fuels for things like meeting essential electricity needs, essential heating needs, uh, and that if you have something external that really shifts the supply of those, um, it can be very hard on consumers. Uh, and so there's really this need to have um, a rapid but planned movement away from reliance on those fuels and actually thinking about what do we replace the domestic use with, what do we replace the exports with, what systems and structures do we need to put in place to enable that to happen. And Tom, so what are your thoughts on this question? Uh, the role that Australia has with, with fossil fuels, the relationship that we have with fossil fuels, both in terms of the global market and locally? Well, I mean, I think also what I'd like to discuss is our strange relationship um, with fossil fuel resources um, because we, we, we treat fossil fuel resources very differently to many other countries. Um, for example... We do not treat them like Norway, where we have a notable resource rent tax that then gets used to uh, be spent on other um, goods within our society. That That's very peculiar relationship that we are a country that allows the extractor of our resources to have super profits um, and do not have a resource rent tax that is either a percentage of income or even a super profit tax. So at the moment now, and this is also part of the gas, oil, iron ore story, is that we have a global price that is really high. Um, we have uh, gas um, companies making very large profits and then about to pass on the costs of that gas to, uh, to uh, basically households and industry. Yet... Basically, none of their operating costs have changed. So, you know, a lot of these companies are making a large amount of profit and will still pass on, uh, you know, the higher gas prices to customers as well. So, um, you know, there's a, this, re of course, there are different companies involved, but we have this very peculiar arrangement, very peculiar relationship with resources where we don't do what is basically resource economics 101 and when we know that companies are making huge profits um, and let's call them supernormal profits during times where the global prices are higher than usual we don't even tax that at a higher rate where a country like Norway um, will have a you know 78 percent tax rate on income for uh, companies operating in the North Sea and extracting that oil there um, and then using that to fund things within society, like, you know, uh, public goods and other things like that. So 
um, definitely picking up on those words, Anna Greta, that we have a very strange relationship. I, I don't know if you use the word strange, but it is a very perplexing relationship with fossil fuel resources. And as Lee mentioned, um, the discussion now for many people is, well, if we go, if we transition away from resources, fossil fuel resources, including domestically, but also as exports, then what could we get into? Um, and that's where a lot of the discussion at the moment is about hydrogen, hydrogen exports to Asia, is will that actually be a substitute good that we can export and replace you know, exports of coal, exports of LNG with. Tom, what you've described there is, is quite an extraordinary relationship that we have with, with fossil fuels. And I, I just wonder, as you're talking, if we are to, you know, turn to um, the export of hydrogen or to, um, to other forms of exports, are we going to fall into the same trap, do you think? Is this uh, an issue of... of um, the failure to regulate markets and the failure to think very deeply about the, the, the taxation system and how we think about redistribution. Um, how can we avoid those, those same kinds of strange peculiarities playing out as we move to perhaps something like hydrogen or hydrogen exports? Yeah, so it, it's even before we get to the discussion about hydrogen, we also need to look at how the future of renewables in Australia is going to be mapped out and making sure that uh, when those projects get started, that there is an integration and an understanding of local benefits and also uh, the traditional owners of the land um, and really working within the Indigenous groups to make sure that those projects are just and are fair. Um, one of the concerns that are really valid is that um, a lot of the a lot of companies are getting into renewable projects and pitching larger and larger and larger scale and being able to actually make sure that those projects don't repeat the mistakes of the past is very important um, and so that's even before we get to hydrogen exports you know we need to start talking about how the renewable revolution happens in Australia firstly of course, that is then tied to the discussion of green hydrogen and exporting uh, green hydrogen made from renewables. Bear in mind that we do have the debate in Australia at the moment about still producing hydrogen from gas and from coal um, and that there are existing projects that are looking at um, coal and gas options for exporting hydrogen. Lee, I'd, I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on these issues around transition. And I think some of our listeners might be thinking, why can't we just close our non-renewable assets now, um, as particularly as we think about um, not just cost but climate issues and produce more energy with renewables? But Australia's energy market operator has flagged stability issues with a renewables-dominated system, given our current infrastructure. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on what steps are needed to, to address those concerns, but also how we do that in a way to ensure that the transition is just. Yeah, I mean, with, with the renewable energy transition, we, we really want to make sure that it's not something that is you know, causing issues within the system. And we also want to use it 
ideally as a way to avoid repeating mistakes that have been made um, in in setting up prior electricity systems. So, I mean, emissions-wise, it would be wonderful if we could just turn off all the coal and gas tomorrow. Um, but as we see with the gas constraints, that really isn't feasible. Uh, you still need the electricity in your day-to-day life. Uh, you still need something to source heat with. Um, and it there are challenges for the grid operators. Uh, going back a little to our earlier discussion of the different markets and the different states, um, you know, you might have a lot of solar uh, or wind in one state, but if you don't have enough transmission, you can't always get it from the place where the electricity is being generated to the place where the demand is, uh, where people need to turn their heaters on. In the, the transition, there's a need for more uh, more renewable generation, but also there's a need for uh, strategies to smooth it over time. Um, things like solar occurring during the day isn't helping to meet demand in the evening. You need to consider the different mix of generation. You need to consider things like storage of electricity, uh, things like batteries, pumped hydro, uh, potentially hydrogen. Um, you need to consider also potentially things like managing the timing of demand. But if you are moving to consider managing the timing of demand, which can be a much cheaper way, right, when you have, uh, say, high, high evening peak demand, when everyone uh, gets home in the evening and wants to cook dinner and warm up their house just as the sun is going down and the solar is going offline, if you want to try to move some of the demand away with things like price signals, you need to be very careful that those price signals aren't hitting harder for people who already uh, might face a lot of constraints around their electricity use and costs. Um, for example, uh, groups that have particular medical needs to keep uh, temperatures stable or things like that. Uh, and so it really is a situation where a lot of different uh, things need to happen at once and it, with a very high level of coordination in some ways. Um, and it needs to be some kind of combination, I think, of, of market signals and uh, a lot of tracking um, to make sure that things are not worsening um, so that they can be detected early um, before they become entrenched. Lee, that's such a helpful explanation to help us understand some of these issues. And I think this conversation so far has just beautifully mapped out what some of the challenges are and and does raise some real issues about equity and access that we're keen to pick up on. But first, we're going to take just a little break and we will come back in just a moment to continue talking through these things. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. 
Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back. We're here with Tom Longdon and Lee Weiss, who've shone a light on the current challenges that are facing the Australian energy system. Shortly, we're going to look at some hope for change and transition and the sorts of extraordinary opportunities that face the, that we have in our policy uh, framework. But before we go to the solutions framework, Tom, I'm really interested to hear from you about some of the human impacts of unreliable, unsustainable and unaffordable energy. And I know that you and colleagues have done some quite remarkable works, work around this in the Australian context. We know that there are adverse health outcomes that relate to climate change, and I'm particularly interested in this relationship between both the changing climate and the sorts of weather extremes we face and the idea of energy insecurity and what sort of health impacts that will have for uh, people who live in the Australian, on the Australian continent. Could you tell us a little bit about that work? Yeah, well, I think um, talking about energy insecurity is a really interesting discussion because most people forget how important electricity and energy is to our day-to-day lives. And, you know, we really do forget and we do take it for granted how, uh, how you know, how, how reliable and secure our energy system is um, compared to many other countries. We do not have those days where we go home and think that it's a 50-50 chance that we won't have electricity at home. Bear in mind that that is in our major cities because our research looked at remote um, communities in the Northern Territory where they have prepayment for electricity, um, which works very similar to the sort of mobile phone system where you basically top up your account with credit and then expend it. And if you expend that credit, then the, the system disconnects and you no longer have electricity, which happens in remote Indigenous communities in the Northern Territory. So how often how often does that happen? So I, I can't remember the last time my electricity was disconnected. I've, I remember renting as a student, and I know that there are points at various points, particularly when I was a student, where my, my bill might be paid late. I don't remember the electricity ever being disconnected in my time as an adult. Does that happen very often in the Northern Territory? Yeah, so we actually uh, found that almost all households, so no, 91% of households had discon- had disconnected from electricity during a given year and almost three quarters of those households, so 74% were disconnected more than 10 times and also that rate increases during either extreme heat or extreme cold. Um, it was interesting to see that climate zones mattered um, that the central part of the country, that southern part of Northern Territory, was actually having a higher rate of disconnections, both due to extreme heat and extremely cold nights. Um, and what happens basically is that it's very much driven by that need to sustain thermal comfort um, because we found that the rate of disconnection increased during um, you know those extremely cold nights and extremely cold days compared to a reference temperature. So we took into account um, the, the, the typical 
average daily use of each household and how much electricity they were using to measure how much electricity they use and how regularly they disconnect and then estimated using a statistical approach to see how that increased on extremely hot or in extremely cold days. Tom, I, I think your this research feeds so importantly into some of the work that I know you and I have been sharing in the last few years, looking at the, the health impacts of the changing climate and particularly thinking about our population vulnerability to extremes and particularly heat. Um, do you think this will have, a, the, the, dis, the disconnections in the Northern Territory might have a, a relationship to the health outcomes that we see in that, that population? Absolutely. Um, and, and one thing to bear in mind is that all the electricity is off. Um, so that means you can't run heating, you can't run cooling. So anyone with a pre-existing condition is completely uh, vulnerable to whatever the prevailing temperature is. And don't forget that also refrigeration is part of that story. There are no protected, there's no protected network there where you still have lighting run or a fridge run. So, you know, um, storing uh, medicines at cold temperatures no longer becomes viable. Um, that's including people with diabetes who need insulin. You know, those medicines will just go off. Um, so there's a, a very direct link between um, energy insecurity, uh, especially disconnection to health. Um, and really, it's not just about being exposed to those temperatures that we're concerned about, but it's also maintaining refrigeration and other aspects of the home that depend upon electricity. Um, and there is a very much a, dis, a, a direct connection between those disconnections and people's health. Um, and bear in mind that even one of our co-authors, you know, um, it, it, it talked about his own personal experience and his own health issues related to um, being vulnerable to the heat. Tom, it's really shocking to hear that, that account that you're giving. And I think for many people living in particularly urban Australia, you know, that idea of people being disconnected up to 10 times or being disconnected at the hottest times of the year and the consequences in terms of medicine, but presumably also food going off and so on, is, is really hard to imagine. Um, and it's really very confronting to hear what people in remote Australia are facing. Lee, I wanted to ask you about some research that you're doing and you're leading a project called Bringing to Light Regulatory Disparities for Electricity Access and Services Across Australia. And I think that's a very new project that you're, that's only been underway for a couple of months. But I wonder if you could talk us through what you're aiming to do in that project and, and what have been the drivers for that research. Yeah, um, that really was inspired by... It was an idea that we had during this work um, that that Tom and I and many other co-authors were doing, and you know, as we were looking at these disconnection rates, I had the thought that you know, how how can this be happening? How is regulation not preventing this level of disconnection from service? And you know, it, it seems very at odds with what we're seeing, you know, in urban areas. Um, and so what we really wanted to do in the project was systematically map that. Um, and so we're still in the very preliminary stages there. One thing that I'll flag from those preliminary investigations and also from the work that Tom was talking about is when it's a prepayment meter, 
it's termed as a self-disconnection. And so that's often distinct in the regulatory protections from a disconnection, uh, whereas for a disconnection, you might get a warning notice. And I think you're generally required to get a warning notice and several attempts to reach you before your power is cut off if you're on post-payment. If you're instead on a a prepayment meter and you self-disconnect, there's no warning. Uh, There's no obligation for warning. And it's just a very different situation uh, in its suddenness um, and and the obligation really being on the customer instead of being on the utility around maintaining that connection. Um, The idea that once the money is gone, the power is immediately off. Um, And, you know, one other thing I'll flag from that is we're seeing it in a lot of cases that uh, life support protection and prepayment meters are incompatible. Uh, but that's very complex, really, in the regulatory situation, um, where if someone is on a prepayment meter and would like protections for life support, it becomes quite a complex process for them. Do they change their payment system? How does the utility enable that? What other consequences might they face? Uh, and how do they navigate this really quite complex process? And do they actually have enough information to do something like that? Um, so we're looking forward to the rest of what we find in uh, that project as we continue with it. Or we're looking forward to shining more light on these issues. It's such important work and, and it's important, I think, to note that there's a large number of authors involved in, in that research. The, the paper that particularly was published in Nature Energy um, included members of the communities that have been affected by these issues. Um, and I understand part of the role here is actually explaining in communities where, where this is normal that it really is very not normal um, in, in the rest of the country. I wanted to turn our attention now to thinking about the future. We we had at the end of May a an election in Australia and we have a new government in place. And in the last few weeks, Sharon and I have so enjoyed being able to, to talk about the, the options for change in terms of policy uh, development. Tanya Plebisek is the first federal environment minister who has set the wheels in motion to reject a proposed coal mine. Uh, this particular most recent uh, discussion has been about a coal mine in Queensland. Why do you think Tanya Plebisek is the first person to do this? And do you think it's a matter of lacking political will previously or, or do you see this as a sign of optimism? Do you think that we're, we're looking at change? Tom, what are your thoughts on the politics of the new coal mine in Queensland? Well, for a long time we've been ignoring that um, exogenous cost of carbon um, and have really had the debate skewed with conversations that if it's for export, it is somebody else's responsibility. Um, and that definitely comes into the, the conversations about opening new mines, that there's that narrative there that it doesn't matter. It's not a domestic, if it's not domestic consumption, then it's someone else's decision. And that if we didn't export it, then someone else would actually just sell it to that country that's demanding it. Um, which really doesn't make sense in the climate change debate where it's a global problem where any emissions, any CO2 or carbon uh, greenhouse gas emissions impact the challenge of reducing um, the the impacts of extreme temperatures. Um, And so it's really interesting to see 
um, some of the debates that's happening in the US about the social cost of carbon. Um, and so the, the Biden administration are increasing the social costs of carbon back to the level that was under the uh, Obama administration to $51 per tonne of CO2. Um, so that's not a carbon tax. It's a different concept. It's basically a concept where when you're making planning decisions, you internalise the cost of the carbon emissions into the evaluation of that project. And that's really important. And that's p potentially part of the narrative behind this decision. But what a lot of people have been pushing for is to take responsibility for the emissions that would be incurred um, overseas and internalise them here in Australia. So the concept of a social cost of carbon um, that is a concept that applies in the ACT but does not happen at the federal level. That would change a lot of decisions. The other thing that's of interest there about um, those new mines opening up is the discussion about emissions has really shifted as well to start talking about fugitive emissions and methane emissions. Um, and basically some of the re recent research has found that fugitive emissions from gas and coal, including mines, um, coal mines, are much higher than many people had uh, estimated before. Um, the US are starting to tackle uh, the issue of methane emissions with their new uh, legislation. Uh, they're targeting to uh, an improvement in methane emissions. And that's part of the narrative that needs to be um, discussed here in Australia, is that those, those coal mines themselves, just the actual mining process will have fugitive emissions that are part of our carbon footprint. Lee, Tom has, has just mapped out, you know, the ways in which we need to understand the social cost of carbon much more and take that seriously and move away from the idea that what we export from Australia is someone else's problem. I'd love to hear from you what you think a move away from non-renewable renewables or, or a move to renewable energy might have for some of the issues of access and equity that we've been talking about in the Australian context. Uh, are those issues of, of access and equity likely to be made worse um, as a result of moving towards renewables or is this really a regulation challenge rather than an issue of what type of energy is being used? I think it is a regulation challenge and in many ways a move to renewables uh, has the potential to really help alleviate some of these problems. For example, in the remote communities, uh, a lot of their power at the moment tends to come from diesel brought in, which is very expensive, it's very polluting. Um, and if you instead have solar and battery systems uh, in places that tend to have a very high solar resource, uh, it, it could have um, a lot of benefits to those communities. Uh, and particularly uh, things like, well, do the communities want to begin having more control over their own electricity systems uh, in terms of it's their solar rather than it's being brought in? And that's something that really should be explored you know, with the community's voices, uh, groups like the Clean Energy at uh, first First Nations Clean Energy Network um, are 
and uh, original power are beginning to gather some momentum in that area. Um, and, and really thinking about social costs of carbon, I suppose, we've known for a long time that the impacts of climate change are going to fall the worst on the people who can least afford it. Uh, and I think that really extends to the conversation around energy here. Um, it, things like extreme uh, increases in uh, extreme temperatures, the incidence of those, uh, they're going to be much worse for the households that are already uh, cost constrained or, for example, in very inefficient buildings that are much more expensive to keep comfortable. Um, and so I think really it would be a distraction to try to say, well, renewable energy could make problems worse. It, it's very unlikely to make um, make the equity issues worse, even under the same regulation system. And if the regulation system can be improved at the same time, then all the better. Uh, but really, if we don't switch to renewables, we're definitely on track to make a lot of these issues far worse. And I'll just uh, quickly add that there's a real importance of making sure that this current boom in rooftop solar PV happens across the board and isn't just for those people who can afford it. Um, it's a great way for uh, to help uh, lower income households, including those in public housing, to actually have lower electricity bills. But at the moment, um, there aren't that many schemes that really target low income earners and public housing. Uh, it differs from state to state, territory, territory, but that is really one focused way to help people afford electricity day to day. And, and I'll just jump in quickly one more time there. Um, yeah, if we're talking about replacing centralised generation, then that's one thing. But if we are talking about the solar on the rooftops, then we do need to be conscious that some groups currently are effectively cut out of that. Groups like renters, for example, don't have the same situation of being able to benefit from solar on their roofs generally uh, compared to homeowners. And so it, it matters thinking about, well, who's able to access different parts of energy transition in terms of who can get cost benefits from new technologies uh, and who is dependent on, for example, waiting for wider system changes to reach them. It's a really fascinating quest, uh, discussion today, listening to the two of you describing both how the energy system works and the sorts of challenges that are faced in our very large continent. We have a complex energy system in which regulation has not always protected energy supply, particularly thinking about remote communities. We also now have a new government in place and new ideas and new approaches might be better received. And I'd really love to hear from both of you what sorts of models of energy distribution we should be considering in order to, to cover our continent in a just and equitable way. Lee, would you like to start with that? What ideas should we be entertaining? My, I mean, my two cents there is, you know, there, there are countries that have already made that move to very heavily renewable energy systems, but they're different in their resources and their makeup from Australia. And so it's sort of something that we need to build in, in a way that we can continually iterate and improve it as we go. What is the best regulation system for Australia? 
uh, specifically. And I think at the moment, a lot of the transition that's happening um, across Australia in terms of increased rooftop uh, solar PV, electric vehicle are being are, be, are being driven by the cost declines that we've seen over the last five to ten years, and those people who can afford it. And in some ways, our current emissions reductions are cost driven and are basically paying for new technologies to. Um, to drive the change. And so you you are seeing, you know, that in many different neighbourhoods, more rooftop solar, electric vehicles coming on board. But in terms of practices, we're not really changing our practices that much. There's a lot of things that would actually make financial sense that we're not doing, um, like insulating our homes, um, heat pumps, uh, instead of and and phasing out gas, and we're not really seeing a lot of those changes happen. Um, once you know people start changing their mindsets, making different decisions, and also changing their behaviours, um, moving towards more active travel, then we will start to see momentum. But at the moment, we have this interesting sort of momentum starting to shift but really being driven by those who can afford it. And my concern is that a lot of low-income households are feeling left behind. Well, I have to say, Tom Longdon and Lee White, that is a wonderful place to leave a conversation that I know could go for quite a lot longer. I am so grateful for the insights that you both provided us uh, with to the Australian energy system and our complex relationship with fossil fuels. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Anna Greta, that was a fantastic conversation. There, There is so much about the energy market um, and the way all of this plays out that I often feel I just don't understand. And I felt that Tom and Lee did such a beautiful job of mapping all of that out and making it very understandable. But one of the things that really struck me um, was that conversation around disconnection, um, about what happens to people who um, uh, are using the the upfront payment for their for their energy needs and who who get cut off and Lee's point that this isn't even seen as a disconnection it's seen as a self disconnection the issues of inequity and injustice around that I think are just extraordinary um, but I I was also struck by the comments that that both Tom and Lee made about the implications for people's medication for life support. It is outrageous that people are facing those kinds of situations in Australia today. And I'm sure, Anna Greta, you have a lot to to say about that, um, given the very dire health implications of that situation. Yeah, energy is a health issue, and and yet it's not one that we hear talked about in health policy circles with anywhere near the frequency that it deserves. Um, and really that that research that both Tom and Lee were part of that looked at energy insecurity in the Northern Territory has informed a lot of how I speak about this challenge and, and how much I think it deserves prominence in the healthcare debate. 
And that just reminds me, Sharon, as we're going through a series of complex, difficult policy areas, climate change, biodiversity, and now energy, that that each one of these problems has its tendrils of interconnectedness, that we can't look at energy as just simply the origin of where the electron comes from, but it's actually about how the system operates and how we get good, equitable distribution of what is an essential resource for the world in which we live at the moment. Um, And I thought the two conversations we had with the two of them today really helped to highlight that remarkably well. I think that's exactly right, Anna Greta. You know, I, I was thinking as, as they were talking, you know, there's, you, you take those issues of, of inequity and you put it together with climate change and rising temperatures and you get a terrible situation. But you also put it together with the conversation that we had with John Falzon a couple of weeks ago um, and the way in which we have in Australia really failed to address inequity and poverty. You know, we see all of these things interlocking and coming together and I think we've, we've got quite a lot more to talk about in this series um, and we'll step through that in a, a an almost siloed approach as we talk about each of these issues. But yeah. um, I'm looking forward to us bringing it together as we have those conversations, looking for those interconnections and thinking about the way we respond to complexity with com- complex thinking. Yeah, we, we should actually highlight that, that it's not just about electricity disconnection. And we know this from the work that you've done and the work that I've done looking at uh, at the relationship between temperature and morbidity and mortality, uh, that that in um, regions that have, and in households where socioeconomic stress is very real with the cost of living pressures that are faced at the moment, that people are making decisions between adequate temperature control in their home uh, that, that we know is beneficial for their health. And, and being able to buy food or buy, buy petrol. Um, and so these are, again, the complex interconnected uh, policy areas where if we can, can at least shore up the energy supply and make sure that that distribution is equitable, reliable, and, and within the capacity of everyone to access, uh, that, that would be quite an extraordinary health intervention and social intervention, flow-on effects into educational benefits for our children. Um, all of these systems are interrelated. Absolutely. And as we think about those things, of course, we think about the human dimension of this. We think about the fact that we are not simply talking about systems, but we are talking about people. Um, And we are also talking about the health of our planet. And as always, Anna Greta, we come back to that idea of valuing care and how we can put care at the centre of the decisions that we make in these situations of of complex systems and complex problems. And um, I think that's a theme that we will keep coming back to over this series as well. Absolutely. This podcast, of course, is produced by Policy Forum Net, and we'll leave a link to the publications that we've discussed in the show notes. We really hope that you enjoyed this conversation and are enjoying this series as much as Anna Greta and I are. We've been talking a lot about these issues after each episode. Um, and we, we hope that you are also having those conversations. We always love to hear from you, so please do reach out to us on Twitter, send us an email, or join us on Facebook. We will be back again next week. So from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And from me, Anna Hunter, see you next week.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, 